Well, please take your Bibles and turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, and I'll be reading verses 20 through 23. Philippians chapter 4, as we come to the end of our study through the book of Philippians, follow along as I read, beginning in verse 20. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. With these words, the Apostle Paul ends his letter to the church at Philippi. It is a fitting end to such a letter. You remember when we began this letter to the church at Philippi, we called it the letter of joy. And it's fitting that this letter of joy would end with subjects that bring joy to the believer's heart. Those subjects are, in verse 20, the glory of God, and in verse 23, the grace of Christ. Glory and grace. And these two things, the glory of God and the grace of Christ, are inextricably tied to the gospel. For the gospel is the good news that sinners can be saved, not by their own works, but by and through the person and work of Jesus Christ, that is, by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the praise of the glory of His grace. And therefore, our salvation does not bring glory to us, but glory to God. And so you might say that there are three themes in these verses which have really been the themes throughout the book of Philippians and puts perspective on all the things that the Apostle Paul has written. Those three themes are glory, gospel, and grace. Glory, gospel, and grace. These have been the themes, as I said, throughout the book of Philippians. The glory of God was seen at the beginning of the book of Philippians in chapter 1, verse 11, when he prays for the church. He prays that they would be filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. In chapter 2, when he speaks of the humiliation of Christ in the incarnation, He speaks of the exaltation of Christ in chapter 2, verse 11. And he says that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The glory of God has been a theme in the book of Philippians. But of course, the gospel has been a theme as well. The word gospel is used nine times in this book. And while none of those references to the gospel is found in chapter 3, it is there that we find a most wonderful explanation of the doctrine of justification, which is at the heart of the gospel. So you remember this gospel proclamation in Philippians 3, beginning in verse 7, where Paul said, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ, More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that righteousness which is through faith in Christ." the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And although the word gospel isn't used there, that is the heart of the gospel, the good news, that unrighteous sinners can be made righteous, not through a righteousness they attain, but through a righteousness that is imputed to their account by the grace of God. And while the word gospel is not used by Paul in chapter 4, verses 
20 to 23, the words saints or the word saint is used. And saint means holy one. How can we be made holy? Only by the imputed righteousness of Christ. So even though the word gospel isn't used at the end of this letter, it is a theme that has permeated this book and now is filled at the end in these verses. And then there's the theme of grace, the grace of Christ. Paul began his letter with grace when he said, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's fitting that he would end the letter with grace. For salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And so here at the end of the letter, we have those three themes coming together. Glory, the glory of God, gospel, the good news of salvation in Christ, and then grace, the grace of God in Christ. Glory, gospel, and grace. Children, those are three words that you need to know and you need to understand. Three words. Glory, what does that word mean? Gospel, what does that mean? Grace, what does that mean? So children, listen carefully and learn more and more about the glory of God, the good news of the gospel, and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And adults would say to you, these three words really encompass what life is all about. The glory of God, the gospel of Christ, and the grace of the Lord Jesus. Glory, gospel, grace. They're intertwined together. They're inextricably bound. God is glorious. He's worthy of glory. That's what we see in verse 20. But the Bible says in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And therefore, because we are sinful, we need the grace of Christ in order to give glory to God. And so, without an understanding first of verse 20, the glory of God, that is the glory that belongs to Him, His worth, His excellence, His greatness, we will not be deeply burdened to give glory to Him. Without an understanding of the glory that belongs to God, we will not understand the magnitude and our need for the grace that is found in Christ. Without the grace of Christ, we cannot stand before God's glory in heaven. And without the grace of Christ, we will not desire or be able to give glory to God. And all of this is a part of the gospel of Christ. He saves sinners. And he does so to the utmost. He justifies them. He sanctifies them. And one day he glorifies them. And brings them home to heaven. And so you see how glory, gospel, and grace are inextricably bound together. You can't rightly speak of one without the other. You can't understand one without the other. And so our outline for these verses this morning will be those three words. Glory, verse 20, the glory of God. Gospel, in verses 21 and 22. And then grace in verse 23. Let's begin with glory. Philippians 4 verse 20. Look at the verse. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. This verse is what we call a doxology. The word doxology comes from two Greek words. Doxa and Lagos. The word doxa means praise, honor, glory. The word Lagos means a word or a statement or a declaration. And so a doxology is a statement of praise or a declaration of praise to God. Another example of a doxology in the Bible is found in 1 Timothy 1 verse 17 
where Paul writes, Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. A doxology often proclaims something about God's character. Eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God. And it declares that He is worthy of receiving unending praise and glory. For example, in Romans 11, beginning verse 33, Paul writes, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. How unfathomable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who became His counselor? Or who has first given to Him that it might be paid back to Him again? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things... So in light of that, here's the doxology. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. Sometimes the doxology in Scripture simply calls for unending glory to be given to God. And that's what we have here in Philippians 4 verse 20. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I want you to consider under this heading of glory, the glory of God, in verse 20, these four subheadings. First, the definition of glory, the description of the God of glory, the duration of that glory, and then the the believer's desire for God's glory. So under glory, you have definition, description, duration, and desire. The definition of glory. What does that mean? When we speak of the glory of God. Well, sometimes when the Bible speaks of the glory of God, it means the glory which God Himself possesses in and of Himself. And we can't really give glory to God unless we understand something about the glory of God. And when we understand more more of the glory of God, then we're compelled as believers to bow before Him, to worship Him, to praise Him, and to give glory to Him. So when we speak of the glory of God, sometimes we mean that glory which He possesses inherently in Himself. And in the Old Testament, when the word glory is used of God, a particular Hebrew word is often used. It is the word kavod. Kavod. Literally, it means that something is heavy. Or weighty. Figuratively, it's used to describe the gravity, the magnitude, the greatness of something. And we use it that way. We say that's a heavy subject. That's weighty. Or this is a weighty issue. And we're, we're speaking of the gravity of something that's very important. So when that word is used of God translated the glory of God, it refers to the greatness of God, the magnitude of God's worth. And this is not glory given to Him. This is the glory that He possesses in Himself, that belongs to Him because He is God. The glory of God is the excellency of His person. It is the sum total of the fullness of all that He is, all His attributes and His divine nature. We often speak of individual attributes of God and we dwell upon that aspect of God's character. But there is indeed a simplicity to God. He can't be separated in the parts. He is all those things. And when we speak of who He is in all of His being, then the word that's used is kavod. Weighty, glorious, the fullness of who He is is considered glory. He is the fullness of good. He is the fullness of love. He is the fullness of mercy and grace. He's also the fullness of holiness and justice and righteousness. He has full and complete knowledge. He's omniscient. He has full wisdom. He has Full and absolute power, He is omnipotent. And He's all these things, just mentioning a few, infinitely. And He's all these things in Himself. He's not dependent on anyone to 
give him those things. That's who he is. He's all these things unchangeably, immutably. And he is all these things eternally, forever and ever. In God, all these attributes perfectly and fully and infinitely and eternally exist. And because of this, he is the God of glory. This is kavod. This is weighty. He is glorious. Now, when you read in Scripture, you see that God will manifest, show something of His glory to creatures. In fact, He created all things to put on display something of His glory. The heavens are telling the glory of God. Psalm 19 verse 1. Psalm 97 verse 6. The heavens declare His righteousness. The glory of God is seen in creation in Genesis 1 and 2. It's seen in the creation of man, male and female, Adam and Eve in the garden from the beginning when he said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, to reflect something of our glory. It's the triune Godhead. So we see the glory of God in man made in the image of God. And therefore man has a... a kind of glory in the sense that he reflects the glory of the God who made him. But our glory, so to speak, doesn't compare to the glory of God. Psalm 8 says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. And the psalmist says, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, and in that he sees something of the glory of God, he says this, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? In comparison to the glory of God, we should say how little we are and how great God is. Yet he's crowned us, to use the word in Psalm 8, verse 5, with glory and majesty because we're made in his image. But the glory that man possesses or creation possesses doesn't compare to the the infinite glory of God. So God manifests his glory in creation. He manifested his glory in Jesus coming to earth. In the Old Testament, he would manifest his glory sometimes by a cloud by day as he would lead the people of Israel out of Egypt and a fire by night. Often he would manifest his glory by a bright, shining light. In 1 Timothy 6, verse 16, it says, He alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see. Moses wanted to see something of that glory. Show me your glory, was his request. And God said in Exodus 33, verse 20, You cannot see my face, meaning the fullness of my glory. For no man can see me and live. When the prophet Isaiah saw a vision of the glory of God in the temple, he fell down with shame and said, Woe is me, for I am ruined. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He saw something of the glory of God. One day, in heaven, the glory of God will be on display, and I believe we'll be able to see something of the glory of God that we've now can't currently see, but then we'll be able to see and understand more fully because we will be glorified with glorified bodies, no more presence of sin, and so we'll be able to experience the glory of God in a way we currently cannot. So heaven and the new Jerusalem are described in this way in Revelation 21 verse 23, and the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine upon it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. This is the glory 
of God, the glory that he possesses. So in this, this sense, glory is used in the Bible as a word to describe the superlative and supreme honor of God in his person. The majesty of who he is. This is the glory of God. But the apostle, in light of that, now is speaking of glory that should be given to God. Now to our God and Father be the glory. This is glory directed to God. This speaks of the glory we are to give Him because of who He is. So here we are told to give glory to God. We just read this in Revelation chapter 4 in our scripture reading during the service. Revelation 4 verse 9, And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, to Him who lives forever and ever, creatures would fall down and worship. They're giving glory to Him because He is glorious. So this is what the apostle means here by the glory of God. Here he's referring to glory given to him because he is glorious. Now to our God and Father be the glory. Our giving him glory doesn't add to his glorious nature. It doesn't make him more glorious. It's just the fitting response to him because of who he is. He is the God of glory, who therefore is worthy of glory and praise and honor that we as believers should give to him. In fact, all of creation should give to him. Now it's important to understand how we use these words. When we say, now to him be glory, meaning we are to give him glory. It doesn't mean, again, that we add to his glory, like God possesses an amount of glory, and we give him more glory. No, he is glorious. We're just, again, responding fittingly to a God who is the God of all glory. When you look at a sunrise and say, wow, how beautiful, you don't add to its beauty. You don't add to the glory of that sunrise. You're just declaring what is already true apart from you. You're just acknowledging what is true about what you're observing. And if you did not admire the sunrise, it would be just as glorious. But the beauty of a sunrise commands our admiration. It commands our awe. How much more should God Command our admiration, our awe, our worship, our praise. Creation is nothing more than a reflection of His glory, but sometimes we're in awe of what we see. But when we understand who God is, we see that these things are mere reflections of His glory, for He is far more glorious than anything He has created. And so Paul ends by bringing their attention to the glory of God. Now to our God be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So that's a definition of, of glory, but also consider the description of God who is to receive glory in this verse. He's described as Our God and Father. Here he's not just described as God. He is our God. How? By the gospel of grace. You see how they're intertwined? Once our judge and we under his wrath, he is now our God. This is the promise of the new covenant in the blood of Christ. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Titus 2 verse 14. He gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Zealous for good deeds. That we would belong to him. That he would be our God. He's described here as our father. We who were once his enemies, now adopted into his family. Once outside of Christ, now because we're in Christ, 
We are children of God. And we all have spiritual blessings from being in the family of God. And God is our Father. And so like a spark that ignites gasoline into a bursting flame, so God's glory and understanding the truth of God's glory, when applied to the heart of the believer who's been reconciled to him by grace, should burst forth in praise and glory. To him be the glory forever and ever. Why? He is our God and our Father. That should stir us up. And if that doesn't stir up your heart, then be done with lesser things. For this is what life is about. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And the very essence of sin is we do not prize His glory. We fall short of His glory. Notice the duration. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Forever and ever. Unending glory. Peter said it this way in 2 Peter 3.18. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Jude 25 says, From all eternity in the past and now and forevermore. This is what everything is about. (laughs) This is what God is about. His unending glory. Because of who God is, He is worthy of glory from His creatures and from His children. He is worthy of praise and honor forever and ever and without end. And then Paul ends that doxology with the word, Amen. This is desire. We've seen a definition of glory, a description of God in this doxology, the duration of His glory and praise. But notice the desire. Paul says, Amen. Amen means simply, I agree. And let it be so. This is my desire. So Paul is not wasting a word. He's not throwing around spiritual words like sometimes people do. No, he says, now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. That is my desire. And Paul cannot say that without saying, Amen. You've you've seen Pastor Dennis Newell stand up here and preach, one of the elders, when I was in seminary, and he will jump and leap. And, and that's his response often, as I've known him. When he thinks of things glorious, he, he wants to jump. In Scripture, it's a hearty amen. It's the, the desire of the believer that says, let it be so. To him be the glory forever and ever. So Paul says, oh, that the glory, this is all in that word Amen. Oh, that the glory and praise that the glorious God is worthy of would be forever. Let it be so. This is my desire. This is my longing. This is my passion. And this should be the response of everyone to this magnificent God. He is worthy of glory and praise and honor for all eternity. Amen. Let it be so. Is that your desire? Can you say with the psalmist in Psalm 72, verse 17, May his name endure forever. May his name increase as long as the sun shines. And let men bless themselves by him. Let all nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone works wonders. And blessed be his glorious name forever. And may the whole earth be filled with his glory. And the writer of the psalm then says, Amen and Amen. One Amen is not enough. 
Psalm 104, verse 31, let the glory of the Lord endure forever. Is the glory of the Lord going to endure forever? Yes, I know that to be the case. It will not diminish. It will not be extinguished. God is eternal. His glory is forever. But the the psalmist is saying, let it be so. Let the glory of the Lord endure forever. And this is what Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. Is this your passion, your longing? If it's not, then can you say you belong to him? If your life is about your glory, if your life is about you and your pursuits and not in light of this glorious God, then can you say you know him truthfully? This is what God does when he saves the sinner. He makes him his own. He says, you're my child. You belong to me. And he implants in him new godly desires for that which is for the glory of God. Do not fool yourself to think that if that is not your passion, and I don't mean saying the words amen. You can say the words hypocritically. I'm asking you, do you do all things to the glory of Christ? Is that your desire? And when you sin, do you confess your sin in light of I have dishonored your glory? Or do you confess your sin in light of this is how this sin's affected me and my pursuits and my glory? That's not repentance from sin. That's more sin. No. The believer says when he sins, oh, I have sinned against the glory of my God. And he turns to Christ in the gospel and brings glory to God by resting in Christ. And he says, oh, may I not dishonor your name. Hallowed be your name. So Paul ends this, and we'll, we'll apply this in a moment a little more, but he ends this with this doxology. Glory to God. But then we see the gospel. How can sinful creatures so desire the glory of God? Well, that's the gospel. Verses 21 and 22. Again, gospel's not found, but the word, but gospel's found here. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. So now you can't, you can't speak of the glory of God without speaking of the glory of God in salvation and in the gospel. And so now he draws his attention at the end of this letter to the gospel that has been preached and has been believed upon. And so his greeting here is saturated with the gospel. His language is saturated with gospel. And so under gospel, consider these three subheadings that describe the gospel. We won't spend as long on these as we did glory. Here are three words that describe this gospel that you see in these verses. Justifying, it is a justifying gospel. Unifying, it is a unifying gospel. And advancing, it is a gospel that is advancing. Justifying. Where do I get that? In the word saint. As he greets these believers at the end of his letter, he calls them saints. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. All the saints, verse 22, greet you. How is it that we who are sinners can be saints? How are the unrighteous made righteous? The word saint means holy one. You remember back from earlier in Philippians. How can we be called holy ones? Not because we're holy in our practice. We're still sinners. But he calls them saints in Christ Jesus. It's because of Christ, what he has done for us, and because I'm united with Christ and am in Christ Jesus by faith. 
And so I am a saint. I have been declared righteous because the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to my account. I am clothed in his righteousness. It's not my own. So Paul has been speaking of the gospel throughout the book of Philippians, most notably in chapter 3. And now it fills his mind, his heart, his language. Glory to God who has saved these sinners and made them saints. It's a justifying gospel. It makes sinners righteous in the sight of God. But it's also a unifying gospel. He says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. There, there's this unity among the brethren. They are called brothers. They're not, God's not only our God or my God, but he's our God. We're brought into a family of believers. And there is a fellowship we have, not in... Things that don't matter, but the one thing that is most important, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is what bound their hearts together. And so Paul says, I want you to greet every saint. Don't just go back and read this letter and read generally, greet the saints publicly. It's as though he's saying, I want Epaphroditus to come to each one of you and greet you. Paul brings you his greetings. Every saint. He wanted every single saint in the church at Philippi to be greeted for him. And he says, not only me, but the brethren who are with me. That's referring to those who were close to him during his imprisonment, who were ministering to him. Timothy was one of those people. You remember back in Philippians chapter 2. He says, the brethren who are with me as well, they greet you. But then he says in verse 22, all the saints greet you. That's a reference to the whole church in Rome. All the saints in that church greet the saints who've been justified by grace in Philippi. We're all unified in this. The glory of God in the gospel of Christ. It is a justifying and unifying gospel. May I just exhort you again, brethren. Be unified in the gospel. The tie that binds us together again is not sports and hobbies, games, not even ultimately blood relations, but the blood of Christ. Let that be your fellowship this gospel, so that we together as all the saints clothed in the righteousness of Christ, fellowship together in the gospel of Christ. But then I said the third word is advancing. It is an advancing gospel. It is not stagnant. It is on the move. It is unstoppable. And so he says in all these greetings, and when I read it, You were looking down at your Bibles, but I smiled because it's as though Paul is saying, let me just put this in here. Greet all the saints, or all the saints greet you, excuse me, in verse 22. But especially the saints in Rome who are of Caesar's household. Now what is that referring to? You remember back in chapter 1, Paul begins in verse 12 telling them, "I, I want you to to know something that my imprisonment has not impeded the gospel. But my imprisonment has instead been used of God for the furtherance of the gospel, the advancement of the gospel. So that now it's spreading throughout the Praetorian Guard. So as he was being watched in his imprisonment, Paul would preach the gospel. And as he would preach the gospel, the gospel would begin to spread. And others might say, do you hear about this guy in in prison named Paul? Here's what he's proclaiming. And some believed, even among Caesar's household. So he's awaiting trial before Caesar. Ultimately, he'll go to Caesar and be condemned to die. And in the process of that, God is at work in advancing the gospel So that now some have even believed from Caesar's household. 
Now, this is a reference probably not to Caesar's blood relations, but Caesar's household would refer to government workers, princes, judges, soldiers, cooks, tasters, musicians, custodians, you know, all those that would be in this vast palace, let's say, of Caesar's household. And the Caesar, the emperor, would be Nero. A man who hated Christians, an evil man who proclaimed himself as a god to be worshipped. A man who was so wicked, he had his own mother murdered publicly. He slew his own wife under the pretense that she plotted against him. He blamed Christians for a fire that burned half of Rome so he could persecute them. He opposed Christ, but it did not matter. The gospel was advancing to Caesar's household. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he he pleases. So God's grace was penetrating Rome, and God even saved those under the direct authority and rule of the one who opposed the gospel. This is sovereign grace. Paul would write in a later, a latter imprisonment in 2 Timothy 2, verse 9, I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal, but the word of God is not imprisoned. It does not come back void. The gates of hell cannot impede the proclamation of the gospel. The gates of hell cannot impede the building of Christ's church. Certainly the palaces of Rome cannot. And may I remind you today, neither can evil rulers and kings, prime ministers and presidents of this age. The gospel will be preached and will be advanced. To God be the glory. And so Paul says, glory to God. Because of the gospel, God is saving sinners. It's a justifying gospel that unifies us together. Our fellowship is in the gospel. It is advancing no matter the opposition. And then he ends with this grace. Grace in verse 23. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Verse 20 is a doxology. Verse 23 is what we call a benediction. A benediction is a, a good word. Is what benediction means. Good word. And a benediction in the Bible is a blessing upon God's people or a prayer for a blessing upon the people of God. It's often a declaration of the grace of God upon the people of God. An example, number 6, verses 22 to 24. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. It's a desire for the Lord to bless and keep his people. It's a prayer in essence. And here we have a benediction. He ends by saying the grace of the Lord Jesus Be with your spirit. Notice the source of this grace again. It is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. The Greek word equivalent to the Old Testament word for Messiah where a Savior was promised. He is the Christ. Promise that would come. He is Jesus. The Savior was sent. The name given to him was Jesus, which means Yahweh saves. He accomplished the redemption of his people. He is the Lord Jesus Christ, exalted, ascended to heaven, seated at the Father's right hand. He is the source of grace. He is the only Savior. He is the only mediator. But notice how this grace is described When he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with your spirit. This is a sustaining grace. 
May the grace of Christ be with your spirit. Here, often the word spirit is not meant to parse body and soul or body and spirit, but it's used to refer to the whole person, all of who you are. And he says, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. May it ever be present to strengthen you, to sustain you, to aid you, to sanctify you, to keep you. May it be an abiding ever-present grace. May it be with your spirit. Glory, gospel, and grace. This is what our focus should be. This is what the Christian life is all about. And so in light of that, as Paul, born along by the Spirit of God, pins sacred scripture, these are not just words to read over. Paul is just trying to make some small talk, say some religious things so he can finish his letter. No, born along by the Spirit of God, he draws their attention to the glory of God and the glory that is to be given him, the gospel by which he justifies sinners, places them into fellowship with one another, that they might proclaim this gospel together in unity and might walk in the grace by which they have been saved. So then you go back and you should think of everything we've been through in the book of Philippians in light of those three themes. It's a letter of joy. Rejoice in the Lord. But how in the midst of sorrow and trials and troubles and sin and temptations and all the wrestling, to Him be glory. The the believer's joy is that there's a God who is glorious. And in all circumstances, that is my joy. Rejoice in the Lord always. Yes, but sin creeps up in my own heart and selfishness. Remember, He addresses, do nothing from selfishness and empty conceit. What is the remedy to that sin and selfishness and to conflict in the body? When we sin, when we are selfish in relationships, and when there's conflict in the body, it's always because our eyes are on us and our glory, and we need our eyes fixed on the glory of God, the gospel that unifies us and the grace of the Lord Jesus, that we might put sin to death, that we might do nothing from selfishness and empty conceit. He's just exhorted, remember in chapter 4, for these two ladies, Euodia and Syntyche, to live in harmony. How would they do that? To Him be the glory. Your eyes are not on Christ. The gospel is what unifies you. Get your eyes on the gospel and walk by grace, not only with Christ, but with one another. He called them to be willing to suffer for the sake of Christ and the gospel. How can we suffer and be willing to be persecuted for these things? Because to Him be the glory. And this gospel will not advance in a fallen world apart from suffering. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill, His truth abideth still. Be willing to suffer for his sake. And when we have at the forefront of our minds the glory of God, the grace of Christ, and this gospel that unifies us, how can we be prideful? I said earlier, you don't look at a sunrise and say how beautiful and add to its glory. Another illustration from creation, you don't stare at the stars and say, How wonderful I am. Now some do, but that is called megalomania, I think it's called. They're megalomaniacs. They're so focused on themselves. We look at the stars and we look at the expanse and we don't think how great we are. And how the path to humility and the killing of pride is to say, oh, what a glorious God. And in light of the glory of God who would reconcile sinners to himself through the gospel and the grace of Christ, how can we not humble ourselves before him and before one another? How do we stand firm? 
It's got to be in light of the glory of God, the gospel, and the grace of God in Christ. You see, everything, these words are not throwaway words at the end of a letter. These are words to remind us that this is what we have been saved unto. To give glory to God. As justified believers, to be united in those things that matter. The salvation of souls through the proclamation of the gospel. And the only way that's going to happen is not just by saving grace that justifies us, but that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with us, ever abiding, to sustain us and strengthen us, that we might obey what God has commanded in His Word. Amen? Amen. Let's bow our heads together in prayer. Well, Holy Spirit, you are at work, you're active, you're not inactive, you do not sleep and slumber, you are attentive to the preaching of the word, and if it has not borne fruit this day, it's because of hard, compacted soil of hearts. It's because we have not heard with open hearts and received and believed your word. Holy Spirit, thank you for using the word to convict of sin, to correct us and to train us in righteousness, to get our eyes fixed upon not ourselves, but the glory of Christ. Father, I pray that we would repent, Lord, of pride and selfishness and sin that so easily entangles us and enslaves us. Lord, I pray that we'd repent of our seeking after things that are of no eternal value, of seeking glory rather than giving the glory that is due to your name. Father, forgive us for being in conflict with one another when we ought to be unified in the gospel. And Lord, help us to remember that all of these things is by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, not by our efforts, not by our strength, but by grace. May this all humble us before you, that you might receive all the glory and the honor that is due your name in your church, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.